The ACBE Forum, Volume 60, February 2022, Number 8. Published by the American Council of the Blind. Read by Nancy Gahagan in the recording studio of the Perkins Library. Be a part of ACB. The American Council of the Blind, trademark, is a membership organization made up of more than 70 state and special interest affiliates. To join, contact the National Office at 1-800-424-8666. Contribute to our work. Those much-needed contributions, which are tax-deductible, can be sent to Attention Treasurer, ACB 6200 Shingle Creek Parkway, Suite 155, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, 55430. If you wish to remember a relative or friend, the National Office has printed cards available for this purpose. Consider including a gift to ACB in your last will and testament. If your wishes are complex, call the National Office. To make a contribution to ACB by the combined federal campaign, use this number, 11155. Check in with ACB. For the latest in legislative and governmental news, call the Washington Connection 24-7 at 1-800-424-8666 or read it online. Listen to ACB reports by downloading the MP3 file from www.acb.org or call 518-906-1820 and choose option 8. Tune in to ACB Radio at www.acbradio.org or by calling 518-906-1820. Learn more about us at www.acb.org. Follow us on Twitter at at sign ACB National or like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash ACBNATIONAL. Copyright 2022, American Council of the Blind. Eric Bridges, Executive Director, Sharon Lovering, Editor. 1703 North Beauregard Street, Suite 420, Alexandria, Virginia, 22311. Table of Contents President's Message It's All About People and Relationships by Dan Spoon In-person plus virtual equals hybrid by Janet Dickelman. Get on the fast track to advanced leadership. Apply to become a 2022 ACB J.P. Morgan Chase Leadership Fellow by Kenneth Semyon Sr. In Memoriam, Bernice May Kandarian, December 5, 1946 to October 2, 2021 by Roger Peterson. Readers' Memories of Bernice Kandarian. Passings. The Importance of Touch The Perkins Brailler Turned 70 by Judy Cannon Have We Had It Wrong All These Years? by Judy Dixon Access to the Visual World The New Dependence by David Mandel What Color is Air? by Larry Johnson Giving Back in California by Cheryl Cummings What Are the Best Mobile or Web Apps for Blind People? by Lucille Adams. Affiliate News Here and There, edited by Cynthia G. Hawkins. Hitech Swap Shop Aurora Borealis, by Anne Chapetta. 
ACB scholarship application deadline approaches. Are you moving? Do you want to change your subscription? Contact Sharon Lovering in the ACB National Office, 1-800-424-8666 or via email. S-L-O-V-E-R-I-N-G at acb.org. Give her the information and she'll make the changes for you. President's Message It's All About People and Relationships by Dan Spoon As we completed the ACB 2022 Annual Budget, it resonated with me that ACB is all about people. The generosity of our members and partner donors provides us the means to connect people to the mission of ACB. Our Mission Statement ACB strives to increase the independence, security, equality of opportunity, and to improve the quality of life for all blind and visually impaired people. Our annual budget is 80% an investment in people. Our staff, contractors, and members, providing important programs and services to improve the lives of the blind and low vision community. People helping people. It's all about relationships the relationships we have developed with each other and our partners. I would like everyone to take a minute and reflect on all the people you have met because of ACB. It's amazing. This organization fosters friendships. We truly are a family. Leslie and I had our first transformative ACB experience in 2009 at the convention in Orlando. We were at a low point. Leslie had closed her gym earlier in the summer. We were sad and exhausted. My work was very stressful, and I had been doing lots of international traveling for a very difficult global project. At times, it was not easy being the only visually impaired person on a multinational team with tight deadlines and little patience for someone with a disability. We needed a vacation and some time to connect with each other. Some might call it coincidence, but I call it fate. The ACB convention came to us at a time we really needed it. Leslie's sister Anita flew in from California, and the three of us headed for the Orlando convention at the Rosen Center Hotel. Leslie had been contacted by Phyllis Burson, Women's Concerns co-chair, to conduct an armchair yoga session, and Leslie was so excited to get a chance to teach a group of her blind peers. My parents also decided to go out for the week. My mom and dad were active local chapter members, and dad was partnered with Jay Bader to coordinate the general session door prizes. My mom and nephew Sam were volunteers and loved helping escort convention goers around the hotel. You all will not be surprised to learn that our favorite event at the 2009 convention was the Wednesday night auction. It lasted until 2 a.m. with three segments of 45 items each. Leslie and Anita called it a night after the second segment, but I stayed till the bitter end. Brenda and Dan Dillon were in rare form, with answering machine jingles, along with trips to Nashville and the Olympic training facilities in Colorado, up for a bid. I took a plunge and won the trip to Nashville, and it changed our lives forever. It was a five-night stay with tickets to the Grand Old Opry, the Nash Trash Tour, and lunch at Cracker Barrel with Grand Old Opry announcer Mike Terry. However, the best part of the trip, without a doubt, was a Halloween chili dinner at the Dillons. Dan and Brenda prepared homemade chili and apple pie. We sang songs and played games until 2 in the morning. This seemed to be a theme with the Dillons. 
we handed out candy and laughed. Of course, there were a few adult beverages for the Dans. This was the start of a wonderful ACB friendship. The Dillons got us involved in ACB. We joined the Resource Development Committee, and Leslie joined the Auction Committee. The Dillons invited us to Washington, D.C. to participate in the President's Meeting and the Legislative Seminar. They welcomed us to Daytona Beach when they came to Florida for a fall vacation. They invited us to Washington for the WCB convention. We got a chance to spend a weekend with Cindy Van Winkle, now Cindy Hollis. We laughed all weekend long. It was so much fun. I only share these experiences with you all to let you know how an ACB friend has changed our lives. It's all about the relationships. It's the same for advocacy. It's about telling your stories and connecting with the other person. My challenge to you, find your ACB friend. It will make a major difference in your life. It's all about people and relationships. In-person plus virtual equals hybrid by Janet Dickelman In 2020, we held our first virtual convention. In 2022, the American Council of the Blind Conference and Convention is going hybrid. You might ask, as I have, what does that mean? So I looked up the word hybrid in the Webster's English Dictionary on my computer and realized how quickly things have changed. Hybrid. Noun. An animal or plant that is produced from two animals or plants of different kinds. A hybrid of two roses. Something that is formed by combining two or more things. The band plays a hybrid of jazz and rock. This year, ACB will take those roses, or since we are in Nebraska, those in-person and virtual goldenrod flowers, and meld them into our 61st annual first-ever hybrid convention. So how does that impact convention attendees? The in-person experience will remain the same. You can visit the exhibit hall, go on tours, and attend all the sessions, seminars, and workshops. The hybrid experience. Enjoy audio-described tours on our virtual tour channel. Listen to recorded sessions provided by our exhibitors. Join them on interviews on ACB's main menu. Attend a special Zoom session prior to the convention. Hear live interviews from the exhibit hall and leave a message for your favorite exhibitor on our special vendor phone line. ACB General Sessions, Primetime Evening Events, and a number of sessions from ACB committees, special interest affiliates, and our business partners will be available via Zoom and streamed via ACB Media. Virtual Only For our 2022 conference, we plan to extend the life of the convention. Our auction will kick off the convention, followed by three days of our special interest affiliates, ACB committees, and business partners' convention sessions via Zoom. These sessions will also be streamed on ACB Media. Affiliate business meetings, along with the ACB presidents' and committee chairs' meetings, will be held virtually prior to or after the conclusion of the in-person convention. So whether you are going to participate in the convention through a visit to Omaha or will attend while listening from your home or office, the 2022 ACB convention will be one to remember. Once again this year, the conference and convention announce list will be filled with information. To subscribe to the list, send a blank email to acbconvention plus sign subscribe 
at acblists.org. If you received updates for the 2021 convention, you do not need to subscribe to the list. Reservation Details To make reservations online, go to tinyurl.com slash numeral 3 dtzvb numeral 4 j. When asked to select guest type on the main screen, select attendee. For those who wish to call in and make their reservation, call 1-800-HILTONS, 1-800-445-8667, and reference the name of the group block, American Council of the Blind. The group code is ACB. Room rates at the Hilton are $96, single or double occupancy, with an additional $10 per person for up to four people per room. Room tax is currently 18.16%. One night stay will be charged to your credit card when you book the reservation. Convention Contacts 2022 Exhibit Information, Michael Smitherman, 601-331-7740 Exhibits at acb.org E-X-H-I-B-I-T-S at acb.org 2022 Advertising and Sponsorships Anthony Stevens, 202-559-2045 A. Stevens at acb.org A-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S at acb.org For any other convention-related questions, please contact Janet Dickelman, Convention Chair, at 651-428-5059 or via email. Janet.Dickelman at gmail.com. J A N E T dot D I C K E L M A N at gmail.com. Get on the fast track to advanced leadership. Apply to become a 2022 ACB JP Morgan Chase Leadership Fellow by Kenneth Semyon Sr. Are you an ACB member who has been active in the organization on the local and or state level and have a desire to learn more and explore opportunities associated with the national level? Are you an ACB member who has served previously, attended a previous ACB convention, and wishes to re-energize, learn more, expand your horizons with greater involvement in the organization while strengthening ACB with your skills and abilities? Answering yes to either of the above questions makes you a candidate for this award. Read below to confirm your eligibility and necessary commitment to become a member of the 2022 class of ACB J.P. Morgan Chase Leadership Fellows. For the seventh consecutive year, J.P. Morgan Chase will make it possible for five ACB members to attend and participate in the 61st Annual ACB Convention provided that they have demonstrated leadership potential by sharing their abilities within the organization. This year's recipients will enjoy gathering with several classes of leadership fellows and other leaders from around the country as we meet in Omaha, Nebraska from July 1 through 8, 2022. As a leadership fellow, you will be introduced to tools for success through participation in informative workshops, seminars, and leadership development sessions that are sure to prepare you to serve well in future leadership roles within ACB, your local chapter, and your state or special interest affiliate. To be a qualified applicant, you must be 18 years of age or older, blind or visually impaired, an ACB member in good standing, current on membership dues. 
eligible applicants must be endorsed by the president of their state or special interest affiliate. Applicants are encouraged to be sure that they meet the award criteria before requesting that their affiliate president write and submit a letter of recommendation on their behalf. Those considering this award should refrain from asking their chapter president to write a letter. The application process for this award consists of the submission of two letters and participating in an interview with a team of DKM committee members. Your letter of application should include your full name, physical address, email address, containing your name, along with a home and cell number. Then introduce yourself to the committee by including objectives in applying for the Leadership Award, a brief summary of your education and relevant experience, number of years of membership in ACB, as well as previous conventions attended, if any, description of one's role as a leader, and examples of what you bring to ACB. The Affiliate President's Letter of Recommendation should address the applicant's contributions to the affiliate, ACB, and community organizations and describe the applicant's demonstrated leadership skills and leadership potential. Interviews will be scheduled for mid-April. Recipients will be honored by receiving funding for round-trip air travel and supporting transportation, hotel accommodations, double occupancy, per diem allowance for meals and incidentals, leadership institute, reception, banquet tickets, the general convention registration fee, and other activities determined by the committee and ACB's executive director. Optional tours and other fun activities are not covered by the program. Recipients are expected to attend the convention from Friday, July 1 through Friday, July 8, and to participate actively in all designated convention activities, including the daily general sessions, special interest presentations, seminars, and workshops. Send application documents to Kelly Gask in the ACB National Office, K-G-A-S-Q-U-E at acb.org. Deadline for receipt is April 5th. Selected awardees will be notified during the latter part of April. If you have questions, contact Kenneth Semyon Sr., S-E-M-I-E-N dot K at A-T-T dot net, or by phone 409-866-5838. In Memoriam, Bernice May Kandarian, December 5, 1946 to October 2, 2021, by Roger Peterson. Bernice was born in Fresno, California, first child of Harry Aram Kandarian, son of Armenian immigrants, and Jenny Bernita Hewitt Kandarian, daughter of an Arizona Mother of the Year with 10 children, thus 23 cousins for Bernice on her mother's side. She became visually impaired at age 5 from uveitis, apparently resulting from a black widow bite combined with measles and chickenpox. She graduated from Litchfield Park Elementary School and Agua Fria High School in the western suburbs of Phoenix and attained a bachelor's degree from Arizona State University in Tempe. Her family had moved to Litchfield Park, Arizona when she was 7 years old and to Tempe after she graduated from high school. Bernice's work life began when she went to work for the Arizona State University Law School, where she duplicated articles for the students. It is said that some professors referred to getting things Berniced for their classes. Then her rehab counselor sent her to Los Angeles to train to be a service representative for the Social Security Administration. She worked for Social Security in California, Washington, D.C., and Arizona for a total of 14 years. 
Finally, for a brief time, she worked in the Disabled Student Services Office at Stanford University. Meanwhile, another aspect of Bernice's life was taking shape. This was her career as an organizer and advocate among blind people and those with low vision. While at Arizona State University, she was recruited for the developing Arizona Council of the Blind by Judge John Van Landingham, a law schoolmate of Reese Robron, the second president of the American Council of the Blind. Then she got involved with the organized blind in California during her social security training. She played hooky from her training in July 1973 and attended the ACB National Convention in Knoxville, Tennessee. She was hooked. She attended 40 more ACB national conventions before missing one. This was an era in ACB when there was a lot of experimentation with the organization of special interest affiliates, those focused on an interest rather than a state. Bernice helped to organize the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, ACB students, and ACB government employees, not to mention the Silicon Valley Council of the Blind, and she combined administrative skills with policy interest. In 1978, in Salt Lake City, she was tapped to be the chair of the Resolutions Committee. So, as health issues gradually began to interfere with her full-time employment, she began to spend much of her time on organizational matters. Besides ACB affiliates, she worked with local agencies such as Vista Center and the San Francisco Lighthouse. She answered information lines for the Council of Citizens with Low Vision and became a general information source. And practically from her deathbed, she identified some good new board members for CCLVI. Recognition for these feats came in the form of a National Community Service Award from ACB and a place in the California Council of the Blind Hall of Fame. Now the CCLVI is establishing an annual service award to be named for Bernice. Readers' Memories of Bernice Kandarian Bernice was a tireless advocate for better transportation and often reached out to discuss transportation challenges and to seek information on how to address issues. She also had strong opinions of her own and often did a great deal of research first and came to the table with ideas and suggestions. I also appreciate her nudges on behalf of CCLVI for the BOP to look at creating more detailed large print production guidelines. Without her pushing, that process might have taken longer than it did, but she was a force that could not be resisted for too very long. Bernice made us all better, and I am grateful to her and Roger for their work and thoughtful contributions to so many issues. Ron Brooks I have many fond memories of Bernice. Most of them seem to be part of great telephone discussions we would have when Bernice would call me to ask me to do something, or be on some committee or such, for CCLVI. I usually had a reason or two for saying no to what she was requesting, but she never held that against me, and we used to talk incessantly. At this sad time, I have looked for a happy memory with Bernice to share, and I have found one. I do not remember the year, it was probably in the 1990s, and we were flying back home from an ACB convention. I do not remember which one, but Anne and I had to change planes at Chicago O'Hare. I have not flown much over the past several years, and I do not know if this is still a feature of O'Hare, but they used to have an area known as The Room. It was a holding pen where all disabled passengers who had a long layover were supposed to be taken and sequestered so that the airlines could keep track of them. 
Avoiding being captured and sequestered in the room was a challenge in which many people with disabilities have participated over the years. The event I am describing here was the only time Anne and I ever got caught and ushered unceremoniously to the room. When we got there, we immediately found Bernice and Roger, who had also been caught. We sat down with them and Anne said, Roger, I am so sorry I missed you in the exhibit hall. I wanted to get a demonstration of that new... It was some kind of new gadget with a braille display that Roger was employed to demonstrate. Roger said that he had the gadget with him. We figured that we all had at least a couple of hours to be sequestered in the room, so Anne and Roger spread out the gadget stuff on a nearby table and became immediately engrossed in playing with Roger's gadget. Bernice said to me, Well, they seem to have something to do but I want to go find a bar and get a drink. I agreed, so we started to leave the room in search of a bar. Immediately, the uniformed guard blocked our way and told us we could not leave. We, in an initially polite manner, explained that we had a long layover and we were going to a bar. She said we could not do that because we had to stay in the room because we were disabled. We asked if there was a bar in the room and were told, of course not. I think Bernice was in the lead as we pushed past the uniformed guard and headed down the concourse. We moved into the stream of foot traffic with the guard in chase, yelling that we could not leave the room to go to a bar. I do not remember her exact wording, but it amused Bernice and me, and we were laughing all the way down the concourse to the nearest watering hole. Somewhere along the way, the lady gave up the pursuit and returned to her guard station. Bernice and I had a very pleasant conversation and a couple of drinks. By the time we got back to the room, our flights were soon to leave, and Roger and Anne were packing up Roger's gadget. I think Anne liked it, but we decided we could not afford it. However, she and Roger had a good time playing with it in the room, and I will always remember breaking out of the room to go have a drink and a great conversation with Bernice. Michael Byington I was very sorry to hear of Bernice's passing. She has been such a presence in ACB for many years. She was always there in my early days in ACB, giving background information, advice, opinion, and she was never shy to tell me she disagreed with something I was doing or a position ACB was taking on an issue. She was strong, relentless, and so dedicated every day to ACB and her work for the blind and low vision community. May she find her place in the hereafter and continue to advocate for justice for all. Rest in peace, our friend, Kim Charlson. Bernice was instrumental in getting me involved with CCLVI. In 2007, she called me out of the blue and told me she wanted me to serve on the nominating committee. I did. She then told me she wanted me on the board in 2008 while still serving on the nominating committee. I had grave concerns about the appearance of a nominating committee chair being elevated to a board seat, so I declined. But somehow, I still got elected to the board. Not only was Bernice an encyclopedia of information and could spout off dates of what transacted when within ACB and CCLVI, she had a unique style of reaching out, getting people involved to take hold of the organization and running with it. Bernice was at the virtual business meeting of CCLVI in July, and in a private communication with me following, was deeply concerned about the direction the organization was headed. Nevertheless, she remained steadfast in her support of people with low vision believing there is, and always will be, a need for the organization. 
I just wish, and I bear some responsibility given my CCLVI presidency in 2012 and 2013, we would have taken the time to secure the history of the organization. As my cousin Margaret always says, whenever someone passes, another library closes. Jim Iraq. Roger, I join with so many others in expressing my sincere condolences on the passing of Bernice Kandarian. As you know, in the past few years, Bernice and I had several conversations about the history of the Arizona Council, a subject on which she was extremely well-versed, given that she was an Arizona resident at the time AZCB came into being. She will be sorely missed. May she rest in peace. John McCann I was extremely saddened to hear of Bernice's passing this morning. She was one of the first ACB members I met, as she and Joanne were friends and spent time together at our home in L.A. I learned much from her before and after our California affiliate became part of the ACB family, and there certainly was no one who knew and passed along their knowledge of ACB's founding than Bernice. She was also the go-to person on anything and everything related to Social Security while an employee of SSA and for years thereafter. Mitch Pomerantz If it were not for Bernice, I don't know that I would have become involved with ACB on the national level. I remember when Bernice called me to ask me to be on what was then called Women's Concerns, now ACB Women. I remember thinking, What in the world does she see in me, a young 20-something, who was clueless about the world? Bernice taught me that I had a lot to offer and saw potential in me, and also taught me to see the potential in others. I always enjoyed the history lessons given to me by both you and her. I try and carry on the history that I've lived, as well as let people know the inside scoop on other things the two of you have taught me. Lori Scharf Passings. We honor here members, friends, and supporters of the American Council of the Blind who have impacted our lives in many wonderful ways. If you would like to submit a notice for this column, please include as much of the following information as possible. Name. First, last, maiden, if appropriate. City of residence upon passing. State, province of residence upon passing. Other cities, states, countries of residence, places where other blind people may have known this person. Occupation. Date of death. Day if known, month, year. Age. ACB affiliation. Local, state, special interest affiliates, or national committees. Deaths that occurred more than six months ago cannot be reported in this column. Terry Glenn Olandis, October 29, 1958 to October 28, 2021. Terry Glenn Olandis, age 62, of Cincinnati, Ohio, passed away October 28, 2021, due to complications of COVID-19. He was born in McAllister, Oklahoma, on October 29, 1958, to Philip Olandis and Cynthia Berry Olandis, née Campbell. Terry graduated from the Oklahoma School for the Blind in Muskogee, where he did track, baseball, and band. He graduated from Tulsa County College for the Blind in 1987, where he earned his associate's degree. Terry went on to become a certified masseuse in 2005. Terry was serving as the first vice president of the American Council of the Blind of Ohio, where he was also a board member. He was recently elected president of the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind, and he was awarded a lifetime membership in the Greater Cincinnati Chapter of Ohio, where he was president for eight years. 
Terry was active in numerous committees and was the former president of the Western Hills Lions Club. He composed, wrote, and performed multiple musical pieces over the course of his life. His music was eclectic and always heartfelt. He performed solo as well as in several bands, visiting nursing homes, churches, the ACB of Cincinnati, and regularly for family and friends. Terry performed in numerous plays with the Margie Books Company. Terry is well-known and lovingly nominated as the world's best storyteller and is known as the social butterfly. He was preceded in death by his parents and twin brother, Anthony Lynn Olandes. Terry is survived by his beloved son, Anthony Olandes, daughter, Stephanie Olandes Hammonds, grandchildren, Kaylee Olandes, Nicole Olandes, Anthony Olandes, Kaisley Olandes, Cohen Olandes, Jonathan Hammonds, and Tony Hammonds, great-grandchild Liam Nigaman, sisters Sherry Olandes and Carletta Johnson, brothers Philip Olandes and Harley Olandes, girlfriend and soulmate Penny Simpson, bonus son Richard Sherry Simpson, bonus daughter Carletta Joshua Bishop, and a host of other family members and friends. In loving memory of Terry, contributions may be made to the ACB of Ohio Cincinnati chapter. A celebration of life service was held on November 6, 2021. To share a memory or sign the guest book, visit tinyurl.com slash numeral 2 PYY numerals 42 FX. The guest book is near the bottom of the page. The Share Memories button is near the top. Julia Daly Slaymaker, January 13, 1942 to July 20, 2021. Julia was born January 13, 1942, in Lexington, Kentucky, to Henry and Grace Daly. Julia and her younger sister, Martha, attended Lexington schools, including the University of Kentucky, UK. The family lived in a comfortable neighborhood close to the university where Henry taught. After receiving her bachelor's degree from UK in 1964, Julia volunteered for Peace Corps service and was sent to Nigeria to teach in a private school for girls. This was one of the most important and memorable experiences in her life. She sponsored one of her Nigerian students to study in the U.S. and maintained close relationships with Nigerians in the U.S. and with former Peace Corps members. Julia married a returned Peace Corps volunteer, Don Stossberg in 1967. The newly married pair lived in Lexington until they bought a 19th-century farm near Frankfort, Kentucky. Julia and Don began a decades-long project to restore and rebuild the on-site log house. During this time, Julia and Don adopted two children, Stephen and Catherine, and later she birthed her son Mark. This period of their lives was filled with work and challenges such as creek flooding near their home and harsh winters in the 1970s. They lived in a barn trailer while they restored the log house. Despite the natural challenges of rural life, they were able to meet and make lifelong friends with people in the Frankfurt area. Julia, who had obtained a master's degree in geography from UK, began her educational career at Kentucky State University in Frankfurt. Dawn and Julia eventually divorced in the 1980s. At Midway College in Midway, Kentucky, Julia taught social science courses and also met her future husband, Bill Slaymaker, who taught English courses at Midway. Julia convinced Bill to buy a house in Frankfurt, and this move led to matrimony as they got to know each other and appreciate their common interests and shared values. 
Bill was offered a job at Wayne State College in Wayne, Nebraska. He accepted the offer, and Julia helped him move there in 1989. Bill proposed, Julia accepted, and they were married in Kentucky in 1991. Julia moved to Wayne and found work with a local Nebraska Educational Service Unit, ESU, which helped her to certify as a teacher of the visually impaired. She completed the certification and drove the Windy Prairie Roads to rural small-town schools to help students with vision problems. She loved her job, but hated winter weather in the Northern Plains. After serving ESU for almost two decades, she convinced Bill to find a warmer place, further south, closer to Kentucky, where they both could retire. In 2008, they bought a house in Bloomington, Indiana, where Bill had attended Indiana University Graduate School. Julia retired and moved to Bloomington in 2012, and Bill joined her in 2014. Bloomington offered Julia what she had yearned for, milder climate, a cosmopolitan culture, and opportunities to do volunteer work for organizations such as Habitat for Humanity and the T.C. Steele State Historic Site. The move allowed more frequent visits with her 10 grandchildren, and she was able to relocate her sister, Martha, from Lexington to Bloomington, in order to provide greater care and support. Also, her son Mark and family relocated to the same neighborhood in Bloomington. Julia had been a traveler during her lifetime. In retirement, she enjoyed many hiking and biking tours with Rhodes Scholar. She also took many international trips with Bill to Nigeria, Turkey, England and Ireland, Australia, Russia, Sri Lanka, India, Poland, and Martinique. The pandemic of 2020 curtailed her travels, and then in 2021, pancreatic cancer made future travel plans impossible. She received an outpouring of sympathy cards, flowers, and visitations from her many friends. It was obvious she had touched many people in positive ways and had made loyal friends who felt connected to her no matter where they lived. She died July 20, 2021. The members of her religious community and the friends she had made in Bloomington during the nine years of residency celebrated her life, as did her three surviving children and husband, Bill, all of whom provided her comfort, compassion, and love through home care until her death. Hospice supported her for the last five months of her life. A green burial graveside service was held July 22nd. Fond memories and expressions of sympathy may be shared at www.dayderemiahfryee.com. The Importance of Touch Prior to my blindness in 1988, due to a medical accident, I never realized how important the sense of touch truly is and what a truly important and vital role it plays in our lives. Touch has become my eyes to me. I can read Braille, and it is by touch. Unfortunately, Braille is not as vital in this society due to the electronic age, and there is an NLS paucity of Braille magazines, which is unfortunate. I obtain literacy through Braille, spelling and sentence structure, and feel independent to do my own reading. By touching objects, I can identify them and even feel a close relationship with them. This is also true in doing household chores. Even by a touch of the hand of another, I can sense their feelings of optimism and even their acceptance of me as a blind person. Touching is a vital part of life, and nobody should ever take it for granted. Cynthia Groupman The Perkins Brailler Turned 70 by Judy Cannon
When I was a first grader at Perkins, the Lions Club in my hometown bought me my first and only Perkins Brailler. More than 60 years later, this same machine sits on my desk in my home office, ready to use almost every day. There is history connected with this wonderful machine that I am happy to share with you. Let's go back to the 1800s, when a variety of mechanical braille writing devices were produced around the world. Probably the most unique was the daisy writer. The keys were arranged in the shape of a daisy flower, making it awkward to write on the machine. Other designs were tried. In 1892, Frank H. Hall, superintendent of the Illinois School for the Blind, introduced a new design. It was expensive to produce, as all of the parts were made by hand. Replacing parts was difficult and slow. It did have some success, as it was a major improvement over past machines. Hall Press produced its first brailer, the cast iron Model C, in the late 1800s. Improved models were manufactured at the beginning of the 20th century. These machines and those from the past were typically made from cast iron, were heavy, and broke down easily. They were very noisy and expensive to produce. The keys were often hard to push down, and the paper would fall out at the end of the page. We now move forward to the 1930s, when David Abraham immigrated from Liverpool, England. He had served in the Royal Flying Corps during World War I, where he learned auto mechanics. At the time, Abraham developed very high standards for excellence and accuracy. After the war, he worked in his father's stair rail factory, where he designed and built machines that turned the various parts used in the business. After arriving in the Boston area during the Depression, he found work with a maintenance crew building the Charles River Road between Perkins and the Charles River. Abraham noticed the Perkins sign. He thought that the school would be a great place to work. After an interview with then-director, Dr. Gabriel Farrell, he was hired to work in the Industrial Arts Department. In 1931, Dr. Farrell made the decision to completely stop production of brailers. Knowing the abilities and work ethic of David Abraham, Farrell asked him to take on the task of building a prototype of a new brailler. Abraham agreed. He and Dr. Waterhouse collaborated on the new design. They wanted the machine to be quieter, durable, and easy to use for both children and elders. Problems from past brailers needed to be corrected, including making dots uniform in size and placing the brailing head inside the machine. Abraham worked in his home workshop for the next several years. He often visited Fred Lehman, a tool and die maker, to get help in making the parts to complete his project. In later years, Fred Lehman married Abraham's daughter. A prototype was finally presented to the Perkins trustees in 1941. Material needs for wartime manufacturing immediately stopped production. This gave time for Perkins students to put the new machine through its paces. Later, the Perkins trustees authorized the use of half of the Howe Press endowment, originally established by Michael Anagnos, to be used to bring the machine shop in South Boston to the Watertown campus. Abraham became chief engineer and set up the machine shop to his specifications. His perfectionism was often frustrating for management as it caused delays. Abraham said that the Perkins Brailler design was more precise than a fine watch. In 1946, the Perkins trustees voted to subsidize production. Then-manager of Howe Press, Dr. Waterhouse, promoted the Brailler nationally to ensure a strong market. The American Foundation for the Blind, which had recently halted production of its own brailler, assisted Perkins in securing $40,000 in loans from foundations in New York and Boston. 
the Perkins Brailer began to ship in 1951. It was believed that only 1,000 units would be needed, but soon orders of over 2,000 Brailers came in. It took several years for the backlog to be reduced. Its original price was $70. Abraham retired in 1961 when the machine shop was dedicated to him. In the 1990s, the Perkins Brailer was built in other countries to help lower the cost overseas. Production was done in England, India, and South Africa. To date, more than 395,000 Brailers have been shipped to 200 countries and territories. Perkins was able to obtain Perkins Brailer No. 1 from the Oregon School for the Blind. That machine is now part of the Perkins archives. I talked with Leon Murphy, who worked for Howe Press for more than 30 years. He explained why David Abraham was the right person to design and oversee production. Leon said that Abraham was well-liked, very strict, but fair and a perfectionist. Leon joined the Howe Press staff in 1956, retiring as head of the final assembly department more than 30 years later. He said that to get to this point, he had worked on all of the machines in the shop. He had to know how each machine worked and how the parts fit into the whole puzzle. With over 600 parts, this was a challenge. The next step was to learn the pre-assembly process. Only after successfully learning all of these steps could Leon move into the final assembly room. Leon, along with five co-workers, built 40 machines a day. He was dedicated to his work. He knew that the brailer that he was building would be the best that it could be because of David Abraham. Few changes were made to the machine over the years. Till the next time you use your Perkins brailer, remember how it all began. And say thank you to the man who designed this machine, which has lasted more than 70 years. Have We Had It Wrong All These Years? by Judy Dixon Even those Braille readers with only a passing familiarity with the history of Braille will almost certainly have heard that a soldier came to Louis Braille's school and showed the students examples of night writing, a system of dots that had been developed, allowing the military to communicate at night. Louis was inspired by these dots and created a system of writing for blind people that is now used worldwide for reading hundreds of languages by touch. But is this true? A recent article in the spring 2021 issue of the Disability Studies Quarterly, published by the Ohio State University Libraries in partnership with the Society of Disability Studies, entitled Charles Barbier, A Hidden Story by Philippa Campsey, paints a very different picture. After examining original correspondence in primary source documents, she concludes that, 1. The method that inspired Louis Braille was never intended for the military, but was specifically designed for blind people. 2. Barbier did not demonstrate it at the Institution Royale des Jeunes Aveugles, IRJA. 3. It was not used at the school in a phonetic version. And 4. Barbier and Braille met only after Braille had published his own system. For those of us who have closely studied the history of Braille, these revelations are shocking. Campsey examines the books written about Louis Braille and his invention and traces where our long-held notions originated. She uses a collection of Barbier's papers donated in 2001 to the Museum at Association Valentin Oui in Paris and some of Barbier's writings now available as Google Books to piece together a more accurate timeline. She tells us that Barbier was a captain in the French army for only two days in May of 1792. 
He moved to the United States in September of 1792, first living in Baltimore, then moving to Kentucky in 1795. He returned to France in the early 1800s and published several documents about shorthand systems. In 1815, he published a book describing a writing system called point writing that could be represented with dots. This 12-dot system was based on a 5x5 grid of letters. He proposed two forms of this system, one phonetic and one using the traditional French alphabet. He specifically mentions blind people as those who might benefit. He sent his system to IRJA in 1815, but the idea was rejected by its director. In 1821, Barbier again sent information about his method to the school's new director. This time, the director had someone become familiar with the system, and the students began using the alphabetical version of it. She says there is no evidence that Louis Braille met Barbier until 1833, when Barbier learned of Braille's system. Braille had published a description of his writing system four years earlier. After that, they corresponded over the next few years. While it is true that Louis Braille's creation was inspired by a system of writing using dots developed by Barbier, there are many aspects that differ from what is portrayed in most accounts of Louis Braille's life. The details in this article are fascinating and definitely change our view of the history of Braille. Philippa Campsey is an adjunct professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto and a freelance writer and researcher who specializes in urban and municipal affairs. In addition to the article, there is an episode of the Disability History Association podcast released on August 5, 2021. Podcast Episode 30, The Real Origins of Raised Point Writing. Access to the Visual World, The New Dependence, by David Mandel. As a blind child growing up during the 1950s and 1960s, my parents, teachers, and several blind adults constantly told me that I must become independent. They said I had to learn independent living skills in order to manage on my own with a minimum of help from sighted people. I would have to prove to myself and to the world at large that blindness did not mean helplessness. So I learned independent living skills and worked hard to become as independent as possible. I was proud of my accomplishments and very much appreciated the lessons I was taught as a child. Let's move forward to the more complex, technology-driven world of the 21st century. Much work is being done to make the world more accessible to everyone. As its complexity grows, so too does the world's visual content, much of which remains inaccessible to blind and visually impaired individuals. Of course, some of this content has become amazingly accessible, thanks to artificial intelligence. Yet, paradoxically, The need to depend on sighted people to translate much of it has greatly increased. No problem. Blind smartphone owners can readily obtain visual assistance thanks to such apps as Be My Eyes or Ira. Whether it's reading a letter, assembling a laundry cart, or finding one's way to the grocery store, help is always readily at hand. Sounds wonderful, right? Nonetheless, several questions arise. Is this a positive development, or have we embarked on the road to a new dependence? Does expanded accessibility to the world around us necessarily require greater dependence? Is there a conflict between accessibility and independence? Are the lessons I learned growing up as a blind child out of touch, out of date? I don't know all the answers to these questions. 
It is so tempting to call Ira or Be My Eyes and get immediate assistance. No stress, no pain. I can then move on to deal with other aspects of my life. But the voices of yesteryear sometimes nag at me and tell me that I should be careful not to sacrifice the independence I worked so hard to gain. What Color is Air? by Larry Johnson In April 2020, COVID-19 was raging and no vaccine was yet in sight. People were scared. People were dying. We had to isolate ourselves from our families, our friends, and our neighbors. I wanted to find a way to stay in touch. I wanted to find a way to offer words of hope and encouragement. One of my grandsons taught me how to make a video on my iPhone and then upload it to YouTube and Facebook. And thus was born my weekly series of short videos on subjects ranging from the longevity of bowhead whales to what it means to be an American. Through it, I expressed my outrage and condemnation of the heinous and frightening attack on our U.S. Capitol by a lawless mob last January, as well as my praise and gratitude for the countless number of wonderfully positive examples of acts of heroism and kindness carried out each day by teachers, first responders, doctors, nurses, and ordinary citizens. One such example involved a 79-year-old man who asked for hair and makeup lessons at a beauty college in Alberta, Canada, in order to help his wife of 50 years, who was losing her eyesight and burning herself with a curling iron. To keep her safe, he wanted to be able to do her hair for her. The school staff showed him how to use a curling iron and how to apply mascara. A few days later, the man returned with his wife to proudly introduce her to everyone. The director at the school said the woman's hair looked absolutely gorgeous. I was truly grateful to have been given this platform to share my views, my observations, and my concerns. But I was even more grateful to the hundreds who chose to watch and listen for the sharing of their comments, their personal stories, their opinions, and their insights. It was a marvelously meaningful experience for me. I have now gathered together all 60 weekly episodes and published them in a book on Amazon, which I call What Color is Air? because it was the title of one of the most popular of my commentaries. Is it because I'm blind that skin color doesn't matter to me? I used to think so. How could it matter if I can't see it? So if everyone was blind, then there'd be no prejudice, right? Well, maybe not. A blind man in Travis County, Texas, filed for divorce early last year after 32 years of marriage, claiming that his wife hid from him the fact that she was black. The story would be absurdly funny if it weren't so painfully racist. The man said that he didn't learn that his wife was African-American until a friend told him three weeks earlier. The man's bigotry no doubt came from odious thoughts placed in his mind by his parents when he was a child. Prejudice is not based on skin color but on ignorance and malice. In May of last year, Laura Kennedy, a 41-year-old Caucasian woman, was brutalized, handcuffed, and arrested in her own home in Washington, D.C. by officers of the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and the National Guard because they were mistakenly told by neighbors that she was an African-American looter. She was held for eight hours until her lawyer showed up and obtained her release. The police blamed the woman's use of tanning lotion for their confusion. Clayton Bigsby is a fictional character created and portrayed by comedian Dave Chappelle for Comedy Central. Bigsby is a blind black man who mistakenly believes that he is white. Woefully unaware of his true identity, 
In one scene, Bigsby speaks to an audience of white supremacists while wearing a Ku Klux Klan robe. At the request of an attendee, he removes his hood, leaving the audience flabbergasted when it's revealed the popular white supremacist is actually black. Ebony Magazine lauded the character for bringing stereotypes and harsh realities of a culture to the mainstream. And as a commentary on the absurdity, the literal and figurative blindness of racism. As the patriarch of a large multiracial family, I am deeply disappointed and profoundly saddened by our society's continuing inability to recognize all of its members as equals and to treat everyone with equal dignity and respect. For in the end, we are all more alike than we are different. We hope, we dream, we love, and the air we breathe has no color. Giving Back in California by Cheryl Cummings Stephanie Watts is an African-American woman who lives in California. Stephanie is married and strives to have an active and healthy lifestyle. Prior to the closure of everything due to the pandemic, she set a goal to participate in one 5K race a month. Stephanie began her professional life in banking, worked for many years in vision services, and retired a senior official in transportation planning. She was successful in her career pursuits and, after retiring, decided that she would like to give back. This led Stephanie to join the CCB Capital Chapter early in 2020. Aware of Stephanie's breadth of skills and commitment to diversity and inclusion, the local chapter's leadership soon called on her to get involved with different committees. Today, Stephanie is active in her local legislative and community affairs committee, the Access and Technology Committee, the Inclusive Diversity Committee, Next Generation, and the Statewide Governmental Affairs Committee, led by Jeff Tom. Stephanie lends her knowledge and skills to creating guidelines for the chapter's email list serve, drafting a constitution and bylaws for the Inclusive Diversity Committee, finding a sponsor for a bill, and advocating for accessible and affordable housing in California. What does she contribute to her chapter? Stephanie stated, I bring an approach of actively listening to people and to really hear what is being said in order to facilitate good communications. By facilitating good communications between people, we can achieve goals which are mutually beneficial. Advocacy is one way of growing stronger. Yet, as Stephanie mentioned, not everyone knows how to do legislative advocacy. Therefore, she believes it is important to take steps to help all members learn how to advocate locally and nationally. In addition to demystifying advocacy, Stephanie hopes that for the future, her chapter and ACB National will continue to do the outreach needed to further diversify membership. I hope we can promote a welcoming space for everybody. What are the best mobile or web apps for blind people? By Lucille Adams. People who are blind or have low vision may be presented with many challenges daily. Running errands, recognizing faces, performing tasks, or even preparing meals can become overly complicated and frustrating. Maybe you're wondering how these people will cope. Fortunately, as technology keeps evolving, more and more apps are being developed to help visually impaired individuals in their daily lives. If someone close to you has a visual impairment, you may explore the following apps and help them gain more autonomy. For the best access to these apps, investing in high-service access points is highly recommended. Top 14 Mobile or Web Apps for the Visually Impaired VoiceOver 
Unlike traditional screen readers for Windows, Apple has integrated VoiceOver in its operating system. VoiceOver is a free built-in screen reader that provides screen magnification, output, and speech for the low vision or blind user. It also has refreshable Braille displays that can be connected and used. VoiceOver is available on all of the latest iOS devices like the iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, and Apple TV. Talkback If your friend is not a fan of Apple products, Android smartphones also have a similar screen reader called Talkback. Talkback follows the same guidelines as VoiceOver. It reads textual elements aloud and explores the screen using Braille. With Talkback, everything is set for smooth navigation. Siri Blind or visually impaired individuals may find clicking the correct button on their phones challenging. So using voice control like Siri enables them to save time. Siri is an easy-to-use vocal assistant directly integrated into iPhones. All your friend has to do is ask Siri to call someone or send a dictated text message, and they're good. Seeing AI Seeing AI is a multi-purpose app available on iOS. It allows visually impaired people to read and describe all types of documents placed under a smartphone camera. This app may help blind people read banknotes or product barcodes with ease. It recognizes colors, faces, and images. Lookout Lookout is Seeing AI's Android counterpart. For optimal user experience, you may help your friend activate their smartphone cameras to use Lookout effectively. Lookout has a quick read mode that enables it to skim through text, which is ideal when sorting emails. Be My Eyes Be My Eyes has an audio-video connection that allows users to get in touch. This app lets visually impaired individuals ask for assistance from sighted users like you. It's beneficial, especially when blind people need others' help choosing their clothes or reading a product's expiration date. Ira Like Be My Eyes, Ira also connects visually impaired individuals to sighted ones. Sighted Ira users are specifically trained to assist blind people. Although your friend can download the app for free, they will be charged depending on the different services and plans Ira provides. Move it. If your friend is used to taking public transportation, this app is beneficial. Move it lists all the possible means of transport itineraries, timetables, and other information on real-time traffic. While on the bus, this app indicates the names of stops. It also marks subway stations or trams. MoveIt proves to be essential for visually impaired individuals when voice announcements aren't activated. Microsoft Soundscape Microsoft developed this app, which uses audio 3D technology, to describe the environment to people who are blind or have low vision. Soundscape helps blind people perceive their surroundings better. They can use this app even if their smartphones are in their pockets. Google Assistant Google Assistant is also activated by voice control, just like Siri. Your visually impaired friend can control this app on their smartphone according to their needs. They can send emails, set up an alarm, and manage their schedule. Google Assistant is available on both iOS and Android. Google Maps Being able to anticipate their route is crucial for visually impaired individuals. Google Maps is a GPS navigation app that enables users to access real-time traffic information. Google Maps now has a new feature called Accessible Places. It enables visually impaired individuals to know more information concerning the exact location of a building and the seating plan of a restaurant. 
Access Note. Access Note is a sophisticated note-taking app compatible with VoiceOver. It's designed to support students and working professionals with visual impairments. Big Digital Clock. This time-telling app uses the entire phone screen to tell the time. A user can adjust the clock's color and brightness according to their preference. The Big Digital Clock app is available for download in iOS and Android. Blind Bargains. Blind Bargains assists people with visual impairment by providing the latest deals in one place. Your friend may use this app to purchase screen readers, braille printers, and other accessible products. Conclusion Modern technology and innovation have opened the door to a world of possibilities. They have torn down barriers, making real inroads into improving accessibility. With the help of apps especially designed for the visually impaired, blind people can now live their lives as normal as possible. Affiliate News Apply now for one of CCLVI's Shigert Scholarships. Low Vision students have a unique opportunity to receive financial assistance for full-time college studies through the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International, CCLVI, Shigert Scholarship Program. Three eligible applicants, an incoming freshman, an undergraduate, and a graduate student, will each be awarded a $3,000 scholarship. The application period opens January 1, 2022 at midnight and closes at 11.59 p.m. Eastern on March 15. For a description of the program, guidelines, reimbursement policy, and low vision certification requirements, go to www.shigert.org, www.shigert.org, and click on Shigert Scholarship Guidelines. If you have questions, call 1-844-460-0625. Here and There, edited by Cynthia G. Hawkins. The announcement of products and services in this column does not represent an endorsement by the American Council of the Blind, its officers, or staff. Listings are free of charge for the benefit of our readers. The ACB Braille Forum cannot be held responsible for the reliability of the products and services mentioned. To submit items for this column, send a message to slovering at acb.org or phone the National Office at 1-800-424-8666 and leave a message in Sharon Lovering's mailbox. Information must be received at least two months ahead of publication date. Applications for Holman Prize Sought In 2017, Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired in San Francisco launched the Holman Prize to support the emerging adventurousness and can-do spirit of blind and low-vision people worldwide. This endeavor celebrates people who want to shape their own future instead of having it laid out for them. Created specifically for legally blind individuals, with a penchant for exploration of all types, the prize provides financial backing, up to $25,000, for three individuals to explore the world and push their limits. The ideal candidate is someone who is willing to probe their environment and eager to savor the richness of a world that is so often thought of as inaccessible to the blind. This exploration may involve travel, community organizing, athletics, creating art, and more. The prize begins with a challenge. Blind applicants must submit a first-round pitch in the form of a 90-second YouTube video. 
Later, a select group of semifinalists will submit in-depth written proposals, and an even smaller group of finalists will be interviewed by Lighthouse staff. Submissions for the 2022 Holman Prize close on March 20th at 11.59 p.m. Pacific Time. For more information, or to apply, send an email to holman at ligththouse-sf.org or call 415-694-7315. Objective Ed receives WCB One World Award. At their 2021 annual convention, the Washington Council of the Blind recognized Objective Ed with their One World Award for their continuing interest in educational technology for children with blindness and low vision. During the pandemic, Objective Ed made sure that parents and students had support for their studies through tools like Braille AI Tutor, an innovative system allowing students to improve their Braille literacy skills independently. To learn more about the variety of educational apps for students with visual impairments, visit www.objectived.org. National Inventors Hall of Fame 2022 Seven innovation pioneers whose inventions range from cataract surgery to the modern automobile will be honored as part of the latest class of National Inventors Hall of Fame, NIHF, inductees. One such inductee is Dr. Patricia Bath, posthumous, who invented a device and technique to remove cataracts known as laser FACO, which uses a laser rather than ultrasound technology. Other inductees are Marion Croak, VoiceOver Internet Protocol, VOIP, Lonnie Johnson, the Super Soaker, Catalin Carico, and Dr. Drew Wiseman, modified mRNA technology used in COVID-19 vaccines, Carl Benz, posthumous, the modern automobile, and James Buchanan Eads, posthumous, American infrastructure and defense. For more information, visit tinyurl.com slash yapzr.com. Numeral 9, MP. APH Awardees Hall of Fame Inductions The American Printing House recently presented its annual awards during its 153rd meeting. Dr. Marjorie Kaiser was the recipient of the Wings of Freedom Award, the highest honor presented by APH. Gilles Pepin, chairman of Humanware's board, received the Horizon Award, which recognizes individuals who continually pursue new ideas that result in the development of innovative products for people who are blind or have low vision. The Louis Award, named after Louis Braille, went to the Lego Foundation. This award recognizes a product, idea, method, or promotional effort that increased the availability or awareness of Braille and or tactile graphics. The Navigator Award which recognizes collaborative efforts and partnerships necessary to remove barriers and provide pathways to education, went to the American Foundation for the Blind and Dr. Penny Rosenblum. The new inductees to the Hall of Fame for Leaders and Legends in the Blindness Field are Samuel Bacon and Ambrose M. Shotwell. Samuel Bacon, 1823-1909, founded three historic residential schools for students who were blind or visually impaired. Almost 175 years later, the schools are still serving students. Ambrose Milton Shotwell, 1853-1930, born with optic nerve atrophy, co-drafted a law that founded the Michigan School for the Blind. 
he established the Michigan Employment Institution for the Blind, and he helped shape the American Association of Workers for the Blind, AAWB. 2021 Barron Prize Recipients Announced The Barron Prize recognizes inspiring, public-spirited young people. Among the 2021 recipients were Faraz Tamboli, age 14, of New Jersey, who invented Talk Motion, a device that helps people who are deaf and aphonic, voiceless, communicate. And Jordan Reeves, age 15, of Missouri, who co-founded Born Just Right, a nonprofit that inspires kids with disabilities to design innovations based on their own differences and experiences. For more information, visit www.baronprize.org. Accessible Pharmacy Services Accessible Pharmacy Services for the Blind is a comprehensive home delivery pharmacy service specializing in the needs of the blind and low vision community. We are the only provider of its kind and the largest blind-owned healthcare company in the United States. We also work closely with patients with other disabilities and seniors. The pharmacy provides free delivery of prescription medication, over-the-counter medication, eye drops, insulin and diabetic supplies, vitamins and nutritional supplements, and guide dog and pet medication. It also offers free accessible packaging, pre-sorted disposable pill organizers, pre-sorted daily pill packets, standard and easy open bottles, and single-unit liquid doses of children's medicine for blind parents. In addition, the pharmacy provides free accessible labeling in Braille, large print, script talk, English, and Spanish, and, coming in early 2022, way around labels. For more information, call 215-799-9900 or email info at accessiblepharmacy.com. Info at accessiblepharmacy.com. Needle-Free Diabetes Test A pain-free diabetes test developed at the University of Newcastle, Australia, could be in the hands of consumers in 2023. The sensor, similar in size to a stick of chewing gum and considerably thinner, detects substances that exist in saliva in minute concentrations. Coated with a natural enzyme, glucose oxidase, the biosensor interacts with saliva, producing a reaction that generates an electrical current. This current can be detected and measured to reveal highly accurate glucose levels, which could be delivered via a smartphone app, and the data stored in the cloud. Read the whole article at tinyurl.com slash numerals 33 P numeral 9 HSVK. Envision Research Fellow Promoted to Research Associate The Envision Research Institute, ERI, recently announced the promotion of Jing Zhu, Ph.D., to the position of research associate. Dr. Zhu's research will focus on designing and evaluating a collision warning and assistance system to support hazard detection and avoidance for drivers with vision loss due to age-related macular degeneration, AMD. Braille Jumble with the Braille Bug Tired of the same old ways of learning Braille? Test your Braille skills with this fun, interactive online game from the American Printing House for the Blind. BrailleBug.org slash games slash Braille dash jumble. First-of-its-kind implant moves to clinical trial. The intracortical visual prosthesis, ICVP, is an implant that connects directly to the brain's visual cortex, bypassing the retina and optic nerves. 
The ICVP is the first intracortical visual implant to use a group of fully implanted miniaturized wireless stimulators to help explore whether individuals with no sight can visualize rendered images in real time through visual perception. NIH has awarded Illinois Tech researchers $2.5 million for the first year of a three-year project that includes implanting their new type of wireless visual prosthesis system in volunteers. In the past two years, the Illinois Tech team has worked with surgeons to develop and refine surgical procedures and are now prepared to surgically implant the devices. During the clinical phase, the idea is to be able to test whether this device will provide study participants with an improved ability to navigate and perform basic orientation tasks. Illinois Tech is partnering with Rush University Medical Center, the Chicago Lighthouse, Johns Hopkins University, the University of Texas at Dallas, Microprobes for Life Science, Cygenics Incorporated, and the University of Chicago. New from National Braille Press There are a lot of new items available from National Braille Press. In the children's section, check out 10 Ways to Hear Snow by Kathy Camper and Kennard Pack. It's available in UEB for ages 4 to 8. For those who have made fitness one of your New Year's resolutions, you may want to take a look at Your Personal Path to Fitness, Finding What Works for You by Judy Dixon and Bonnie O'Day. It's available in Braille, BRF, Word, and Daisy. Explore the universal benefits of an active lifestyle, as well as fitness opportunities available to people who are blind or low vision, including fitness basics, simple at-home fitness activities, apps, and much more. If you love gadgets, gizmos, and other technology, the Orbit Writer by Orbit Research may be right up your alley. This compact, sleek device allows you to connect instantly to your smartphone or computer. The package includes a soft, protective case, a lanyard, a quick-start guide in Braille, and a charging cable. The Orbit Writer works with iOS, Android, Windows, Mac OS, Fire OS, Chrome OS, and Linux devices. For more information, call toll-free 1-800-548-7323 or visit tinyurl.com slash numeral 4E numeral 2 DNS numeral 6A. High-Tech Swap Shop For sale, we walk Smart Cane, like brand new, asking $300. Contact Kevin Bell via email, kcbell numeral one at live dot com. For sale, 32-cell Hymns Polaris note-taker, very gently used, in like-new condition. I have the original box and packing material, and I will provide a thumb drive with helpful documentation files. Asking $2,500 or best offer, plus shipping within the 48 adjacent states. I will accept PayPal or U.S. Postal Money Order. I will also consider a reasonable trade. Contact Tom Baylor via email, t-o-m-b-e-h-l-e-r at gmail.com, or by phone, 303-775-775. One one nine nine. Looking for Tanya Smith is looking for a used Perkins Brailer in good condition. Contact Tanya at seven three four five eight six zero four three three or two six nine two two one three seven six nine. Aurora Borealis. It comes in the night. Polar glitter hushes fields. 
settles like a silent paramour. Subdued breath whispers in the highest elevations. Hues burst skyward, like images woven among dreams. Surreal glow dances, pulses like an alien song. Northern Lights, How Lovely is the Universe. Anne Chapetta. ACB Scholarship Application Deadline Approaches ACB and the American Foundation for the Blind, AFB, have partnered together to offer educational scholarships ranging from $2,000 to $7,500 for those attending a technical college or as an entering freshman, undergraduate, or a graduate student. To be eligible for a scholarship, applicants need to be legally blind, maintain a 3.0 GPA to be eligible for most scholarships, be a full-time student, as well as students who work 32 or more hours per week and attend college part-time, and be involved in their school or local community. The application period will be open until February 14, 2022. For more information on how to apply, visit acb.org scholarships. acb.org scholarships. ACB Officers President Dan Spoon, Second Term, 2023 3924 Lake Mirage Boulevard, Orlando, Florida, 32817-1554 First Vice President Deb Cook-Lewis, First Term, 2023 1131 Liberty Drive, Clarkston, Washington, 99403 Second Vice President Ray Campbell, Second Term, 2023, 460 Raintree Court, Number 3K, Glen Ellen, Illinois, 60137. Secretary Denise Colley, Second Term, 2023, 3611 Riverbend Drive, Rosenberg, Texas, 77471-4484. Treasurer David Trott. Final term, 2023. 1018 East Street South, Talladega, Alabama, 35160. Immediate Past President, Kim Charlson. 57 Grandview Avenue, Watertown, Massachusetts, 02472. ACB Board of Directors. Christopher Bell, Pittsburgh, North Carolina. First term, 2024. Jeff Bishop. Kirkland, Washington, second term, 2024. Donna Brown, Romney, West Virginia, first term, 2024. James Crott, Miami, Florida, first term, 2022. Doug Powell, Falls Church, Virginia, second term, 2024. Kenneth Semyon Sr., Beaumont, Texas, first term, 2024. Patrick Sheehan, Silver Spring, Maryland, Second term, 2022. Connie Sims, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Partial term, 2022. Michael Talley, Hueytown, Alabama. First term, 2022. Jeff Tom, Sacramento, California. First term, 2022. ACB Board of Publications. Katie Frederick, Chair, Worthington, Ohio. First term, 2023. Cheryl Cummings, Boston, Massachusetts, first term, 2023. Zelda Gephardt, Edgley, North Dakota, first term, 2022. 
Penny Reader, Montgomery Village, Maryland, second term, 2022. Cachet Wells, Jacksonville, Florida, first term, 2022. Accessing your ACB Braille and eForums. The ACB eForum may be accessed by email on the ACB website, via download from the webpage in Word, plain text, or Braille ready file, or by phone at 518 906 1820. To subscribe to the email version, contact Sharon Lovering, S-L-O-V-E-R-I-N-G, at acb.org. The ACB Braille Forum is available by mail in Braille, large print, NLS-style digital cartridge, and via email. It is also available to read or download from ACB's webpage and by phone 518-906-1820. Subscribe to the podcast versions from your second-generation Victor Reader stream or from pinecast.com slash feed slash acb dash braille dash forum dash and dash e dash forum.